0: Good evening um, It's a pleasure to be here and I'm very excited to uh, do this slideshow. This project has been uh, a long ways um, from coming together and over the last year things have really started to get some steam. Pardon the terrible pun. Um, the back up there. The uh, the project, the mainline project as I call it uh, is basically a contemporary survey of the former Pennsylvania Railroad. So, those of you that aren't aware, the Pennsylvania Railroad has been gone now for about forty years. Um, but my interest in the project really draws from four subjects and their unique interaction with each other: history, railroads, geography, and architecture. As a kid, I was always fascinated by trains. Um, I fortunately never grew out of it, for better or for worse. Um, I always wanted to understand the importance of railroads in the landscape versus just looking at the trains themselves. Uh, By the time I was about 10 or 12, I managed to get a hand on my father's camera and started photographing the local railroad scene near my house. It was nothing major, but what really sort of drew me to the railroad was not what was there, but but not what is there rather, but what was there. And I started taking pictures uh, with just a simple thirty-five millimeter point and shoot, and it kind of spiraled into an uncontrollable urge to study photography. Starting with just a few classes. Where did you grow up? Uh, southern New Jersey. So, um, so it started with a couple of informal classes uh, at community college, and eventually it led me to study at Drexel University, the full-on photography uh, for a full-on photography degree. Um, During my education, I developed, for better or for worse, a love-hate relationship with the view camera. Um, The view camera, as you know, is a very simple box camera. It dates back to to early processes, and um, that camera really sort of gave me a feeling of crafting or making something. All these photographs that you see tonight are shot with film. They are all large format, and I continue to work in that as long as I can get the film um, but throughout college and even after college, railroads and photography stayed completely separate from one another. Um, the work that I found myself doing was informed by my interest in the railroads, but it was not of the railroads. I found myself exploring, you know, the significance of place or buildings that sort of I got to by my interest. But it took a number of projects documenting these changing and disappearing landscapes to acquire the perspective to get back to the very subject that led me to pick up a camera, which was the railroad. By that time, I really wanted to understand its operations, its place in the landscape, and its place in our history in the American landscape, in in the country. Sorry. I chose the Pennsylvania Railroad primarily for one thing the Pennsylvania Railroad had a claim that they were the standard railroad of the world. It's a pretty tall order to say. Um, And I wanted to know, was it arrogance? Was it actual fact? Uh, In the first segment of the project, focused on the landscape, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and Harrisburg, uh, or Marysville, the Rockville Bridge. So I chose the Pennsylvania Railroad because of its claim of being the standard railroad of the world. That's a pretty tall order to fill, but when you look at the legacy of engineering accomplishments of the Pennsylvania Railroad, it's pretty easy to understand why they made this claim. The railroad spanned a congested and industrial region that was rich with natural resources. The Pennsylvania Railroad originally started by building a network from Harrisburg to Pittsburgh, and then by buying smaller railroads, assembled a network and a system that went from New York and D.C., to Pittsburgh, and on to Chicago and St. Louis. The infrastructure of the Pennsylvania Railroad was pretty significant. They had a low-grade freight line that was specifically dedicated for moving freight traffic from the Delaware to Susquehanna River, a four-track main line from New York all the way to Pittsburgh, and onward to Chicago and St. Louis, one of the only electrified rail networks that moved regional and long-distance passenger trains in the United States and also maintain some pretty impressive large-scale terminals. Today, what survives provides a diverse um, selection of technological eras. And in order to re-envision the Pennsylvania Railroad, there's a lot of challenges with something that's gone for 40 years. First and foremost, was pretty the, the, the obvious stuff was access, security, security. Um, You know, in this day and age, the minute you get a camera out, especially some ridiculously large view camera, you're going to get questions asked. Um, More importantly, though, the changes to the railroad network um, after the Pennsylvania Railroad's demise took out big chunks of the puzzle. So it took some time and investigation to figure out how all the missing pieces worked together. But for me, it was important to understand that the project must start with some sort of historical viewpoint, a point of visual reference. Um, When creating a dialogue with this visual reference, you take into consideration the old and bring it together with the modern issues to create an informed body of work. My inspiration and and source of of idea for this project was the work of William H. Rao, The library company's exhibition in 2003 and the subsequent book that John mentioned, The Traveling the Pennsylvania Railroad, would leave a huge mark on me that I could ever uh, imagine. And it's interesting looking at this book because in my backpack in the back of the room is my copy of that book, and it looks terrible compared to this copy. It's my Bible. I walk around with it. I look at it. I travel with it. It's a source of reference all the time. Initially, it was sort of a knee-jerk reaction. I was attracted to Rao's work, the technical process, the flawless prints, the, the, the way he handled the view camera, the way he put photographs together. You know, the dialogue between Rao's work on my own was a, was a really important part of the project and continued to grow and does still today. Raoult was a Philadelphia-based photographer, his relationship with the Pennsylvania Railroad spanned 35 years in the business. But it was two campaigns that brought our attention to him in the 20th century. The first in 1891 and the second in 1893. He used that mammoth plate view camera that you see in this photograph, which gives me a little bit of size envy. Um, when I look at a camera like this, you know, it's an incredible piece of equipment. And to go out and to work with something like this is, is unimaginable today, even with using a, a 5 by 7 view camera, which seems like a joke compared to this. Um, the, the commission was an effort by the railroad to attract leisure travelers, and the use of this work would be for promotional display at the upcoming Columbian Exposition, and also in hotels around the world. Um, the idea was to attract travelers to come see the American landscape by way of the Pennsylvania Railroad. But through Rao's work, I understood that there was the potential of creating a modern survey of the railroad it wasn't just about trains. By exploring the landscape, technology, and the unique properties of the railroad corridor, which provides a built environment that bridges cities, towns, and country alike, I could understand that all, modern fa- all phases of modern operation could be included in this documentation. And Rao's work was a major influence. But this project, I knew very on, I did not want it to be a re-photographic survey. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm trying to take from Ralph's work and make a creative contemporary view of the railroad in reference to Ralph. So beginning in 2007, I set out to document the first charter of the Pennsylvania Railroad in 1846, which was the line between Harrisburg and Pittsburgh. In 18 months, I covered 250 miles of railroad and created over 500 negatives during the project. And that's only been the beginning. Um, Since then, that was in 2007 to about 2000... Well, I'm still going out there. It's never really done. But um, since then, I've started working with Amtrak and now Conrail Shared Assets to move east to Philadelphia, up to New York, and down to D.C. But it was important for me to understand the railroad landscape when I made these photographs. The railroad reveals the westward and industrial expansion in our country. It's a unique isolated, engineered environment among the larger landscape. John Stilgo, the author of the Metropolitan Corridor, helped me to sort of better understand the physical and historical attributes of the railroad landscape. These attributes include on a larger scale, the right-of-way, the transportation networks, and the terminals and engineering accomplishments of the railroad, while also highlighting the unique characteristics, like the areas impacted but not used by the railroads, and the relics of the past along the line. The most recognizable attribute of the railroad is probably the right-of-way. The right-of-way is this unique space that cuts a broad swath through the landscape, linking the towns, manufacturing, mining, and cities along the eastern seaboard. Along the right-of-way, the association between the railroads and industrial development is very obvious, allowing in these small towns like East Conema outside of Johnstown, the narrow valleys, you've got the industry and the towns stacked right up against the valley walls where the railroad cuts through. And at the summit of the Alleghenies, the railroad gracefully winds around mountains. This summit has been in use since 1854 and continues to operate, seeing about 60 freight trains a day. And in urban centers, the, railroad defi- the right-of-way defines and dissects different neighborhoods throughout the country. This right-of-way provided a vital artery for industry providing access to mining, manufacturing, steel production, and deep water ports. The Pennsylvania Railroad infrastructure and network was capable of handling heavy freight traffic. The Monongahela Valley outside of Pittsburgh was home to a large network and infrastructure of rail lines, providing various routes through the city center to feed the steel mills during Pittsburgh's peak industrial times. And the railroad not only hauled finished goods but had access to natural resources originating the raw materials necessi- necess- <laughs> necessary for production. In Johnstown, you have unique relationships between the Pennsylvania Railroad and smaller operations like the Conemaugh and Blacklick Railway. They used terminal roads to service the specialized infrastructure of the steel companies. So the railroad would, the Pensy would basically hand off the freight for the smaller company and deal with the interchange and specialized operations of Bethlehem Steel. And in the agricultural regions like Lancaster County, tobacco warehouses and other cooperative buildings would take different farmers' products, load them into individual rail cars, and build into that carload revenue that the Pennsylvania Railroad and many other railroads used to rely on. And in addition to the freight revenues and the freight networks, the railroads also maintained an extensive passenger system for the good of the people something that we're not so familiar with today, unfortunately. City stations and terminals were the metropolitan gateway to a transportation network. They were elaborate palaces and established a corporate presence in cities. They were destinations in their own right. Unfortunately, many survive a far cry from their past. And the commuter stations were designed to channel the wealthy to the country life to escape big business in the big cities. Many of these networks were in part developed by the railroad, where they created the towns, developed the landscape, and directed the residents to use their services for transportation. And in smaller cities and industrial centers, there were depots of significant size, Harrisburg, in particular, was important to all of Pennsylvania Railroad's east-west passenger traffic. Everything that came from New York and Washington and Philadelphia crossed paths there and then went west. Today's station survives, though not quite as busy as it used to be. And the small-town depots were a simple affair. They combined freight and passenger services, often in one building, and were usually the the, the first ones to lose passenger service, when the railroads tried to mitigate financial loss after World War II. Essential to the railroad infrastructure were freight yards and terminals. They were expensive to operate, but often the beating heart of operations. After the demise of the Pennsylvania Railroad, these terminals fared in different ways. Major classification yards, like Enola, were opened in 1905. This particular yard was three miles in length and during its peak at World War II handled 20,000 freight cars in a 24-hour period. Other yards are a reminder of the local traffic demands, like that in Woodville uh, near Johnstown. This is the particular yard where the railroad would interchange freight with the steel mills. And now today, because Johnstown steel mills are done, they're they're closed and gone, long gone, the yards are just sort of left empty. And the outpost facilities speak to steam era necessity. Today they're weedy spaces and industrial backlots, but they, they are relics of an era an era of earlier railroading where steam railroads required regular service along the line. The Pennsylvania Railroad The Pennsylvania Railroad were pioneers in infrastructure traffic management systems, and electrified freight and passenger service. This section sort of identifies key accomplishments in the field. Bridges uh, were, were a very essential element to the railroad landscape, and each railroad had their own specific preferences. The Pennsylvania Railroad used several varieties, most built under the watchful eye of Chief Engineer William H. Brown, who lived in West Philadelphia for 25 years. Between 1881 and 1906, Brown would engineer and build a number of different styles of bridges. The first and foremost was the Stone Arch Bridge. You can almost always identify the Pennsylvania Railroad by these bridges, no matter where you are. The durability of these bridges allowed them to be built for any particular purpose, whether it was a single-lane overpass or the mile-wide Susquehanna. Perhaps the, well-known, the most well-known bridge from, from William Brown's tenure would be the Rockville Bridge, completed in 1902. It still stands and operates as the longest stone arch bridge in the world. And other steel designs and applications reflect uh, some of the uh, system improvements in 1902 to 1905 during Alexander Cassatt's time as president for the Pennsylvania Railroad. These particular bridges were common for spanning wide valleys, high bridges, and this particular one in Safe Harbor spans the Conestoga River Valley along the Susquehanna. Other variations of steel bridge construction were the Pennsylvania Truss Bridge. The railroad used these where they needed undergrade clearance to be able to put other rail lines underneath it, to cross rivers that were navigable waterways. And a great example is this particular bridge at 52nd Street in West Philadelphia, which was actually built to take passenger trains up and over the neck of the freight yard so nothing would interrupt one another. Another variation and a bridge that would challenge every single ounce of courage in my body uh, would be the Del Air Bridge. The Del Air Bridge was built as a movable bridge to get out of the way to let ships pass through. Um, originally, it would swing open. Oops. Sorry. Uh, originally, it would swing open. And then in the 60s, they actually modified it so the span that's actually in front of me lifts vertically up out of the way so the ships can pass underneath. Um, I'm standing on basically a, a twin tower of what you're looking at, basically at the top of that tower, to give you some perspective, uh, uh, through cooperation of Conrail. <laughs> uh, we, we went up an elevator and then through a, a porthole that was about this big, that was covered in grease and then out onto a a little catwalk where all the cables actually come up off the counterweight and go into the mechanical room. Um, Another important part of the railroad were their interlockings. Well, what's an interlocking? It's a strategic intersection and switch point where trains can change, you know, lines or direction. Um, And through strides to improve operational efficiency, the Pennsylvania Railroad engineered these complex facilities Gaining access to these facilities was was crucial to understanding how the railroad moved traffic. And later on, as I started to work with Amtrak, this would really open up this opportunity. The term interlocking speaks to the system that they used of interlocking mechanical and electrical elements that would control the switches and signals. And they were incredibly well-designed pieces of equipment from the earliest, most primitive Armstrong designs to the more complex designs that that we see today. Zoo Junction, um, named because of its proximity to uh, the Philadelphia Zoological Gardens, was probably the most important junction on the entire Pennsylvania Railroad system. It utilized a series of what they called flying junctions where tracks jumped over or passed under each other so not to cross paths. This was a hallmark of Pennsylvania Railroad engineering. And later, they came up with centralized traffic control, allowing one person to control 30, 40, 50 miles of trackage um, from a central location. The interior of this particular tower in Thorndale reveals the control panel of the Territory of Dispatches, And provides an interesting juxtaposition of 70-year-old technology and current operations. The Pennsylvania Railroad experimented with electric-powered trains starting as early as 1895. But in 1915, they adopted the basic system that Amtrak uses today, using uh, high-voltage alternating current. Initially, to reduce terminal congestion in Philadelphia, uh, the electrification grew in phases throughout the Depression. And by 1938, it stretched from the East Coast all the way to Harrisburg. Details along the railroad reveal the various phases of the project. This particular substation in Bryn Mawr is back to the original segment of the 1915 electrification from Broad Street Station to Paoli. And Behind the scenes, places like the Power Dispatcher's Office um, distributed the electrical power. The Harrisburg Desk, which was the last surviving facility, is actually now going to be preserved, and it just closed last month. A unique property of the railroad corridor is the continually transitioning landscape, spanning town, city, and industrial center. Navigating a landscape in between, only affected by the railroad, but not part of that corridor. These spaces vary from the brownfields and backlots that speak of areas of local industry, to the sublime Susquehanna River. And along the South Fork Creek, the railroad passes right through the dam site that caused the Great Johnstown Flood of 1889. And at the confluence of the Juniata and Susquehanna Rivers, the railroad diverges west like the canal boats did prior to the railroad. Requiring perhaps the most imagination to figure out how this whole puzzle worked was the abandoned pass. Abandoned pass of the railroad presented insight on how the Pennsylvania Railroad network operated before its demise and relates back to early transportation like the canals. Small relics like a signal and relay case on the Philadelphia and Thorndale branch, which is part of the low-grade network between the Delaware and Susquehanna, is a quiet reminder of a superhighway that used to channel freight from the East Coast onward to Pittsburgh. And deregulation allowed the railroads to shed money-losing lines and duplicate trackage after the Pennsylvania Railroad, rendering the Schuylkill Valley Division obsolete in favor of the neighboring Reading Railroad line to Pottsville. And with the reduction and loss of passenger service, uh, complex junctions that were designed to move passenger and freight trains separate now became over-engineered access roads. As I continued this project, I really wanted to expand my viewpoint. In the downtime when I wasn't photographing, I would come here and pester Sarah um, Initially, I remember going through five or six binders full of black and white eight by ten prints of Rao's work and Sarah graciously offered to start making a wish list and we'd uh, should I tell people about this <laughs> to to make a wish list and to start pulling work and looking at it. Um, Rao's imagery sort of really furthered the historical reference and understanding to the success of my project. Ralph's photographs were modern advertising, utilizing a young medium of photography at the time. But the modern implications of his work creates a historical document, a vignette into the past of the surging industrial times, revealing a company and a landscape about to hit its full potential. The perception of RAL and my conceptual framework was more than just imagery. Uh, The book Traveling the Pennsylvania Railroad contained a number of great essays providing insight on the project, the era, the railroads, and its implications today. In particular, there was an essay by John Stilgo, a landscape studies professor at Harvard University, called An Opening Between Trains. This essay would lead me to his to his book, The Metropolitan Carter*, which explains the railroad landscape, breaking down the different characteristics and impact of the railroad corridor. These various approaches in his text were integrated back into the project. So what you see as a result of looking at the railroad attributes was actually sort of culminating as the project went along. Raoul's photographs revealed the Pennsylvania Railroad at the crossroads with the American landscape. The West had already been settled, the lines had already been extended to tap to the western routes, and now the railroad was coming back east and looking at their system and trying to figure out how to improve it and get ready for the next flood of traffic. The railroad was focusing on rebuilding, realigning, improving and expanding to leave the engineering legacy that we have today. This seemingly simple revelation in in Raoul's photographs inspired me to do more research and writing and presentation and aided a better understanding of the layers of history of the railroad. Beginning research research of the sites I had already photographed, I started a blog in 2010 called Photographs in History, presenting articles that were site-specific accounts And for the first time, adding historical context to my own photographs. This writing improved travel and the photographic process tenfold. I would utilize this research beforehand, uh, which seems like a pretty simple idea. You should normally research something before you go and do it. Um, My wife can attest that's not usually the way I do things. Um, And I used it to scout locations and gain that historical context it built a more informed approach before going out on location. By compiling this research and engaging in an in-depth study of the railroad's physical history, within Raoul's imagery, I realized an underlying theme. The evidence of a railroad on the verge of change, improvement, and something much bigger. I began to understand how this tied into my images to complete the story leading up to and after the era when the railroad was truly the standard railroad of the world. By re-examining the railroad attributes that we considered earlier, with the differences between Mr. Rowell and myself, it reveals 120 years of time between this last commission of William Rowell and today. A perspective of past and present starts with the service networks and terminals of the railroad. Ralph photographed Exchange Place Station in Jersey City in 1893. This particular station was a transfer point. You took the train to Jersey City, you had to get off, you get all your luggage, you get on a ferry, and then you went to Manhattan. Whether it was filled with ice or freezing cold didn't matter. That was your choice. There's no doubt in my mind by the time this station was open that the railroad engineers were already figuring out a way to do away with this. Sure enough, 17 years later, they opened the one and only successful through rail terminal in Manhattan, known as Penn Station. Today, unfortunately, not quite what it used to be. Philadelphia, the original in Philadelphia, the original 1881 Broad Street Station, is overshadowed by an incomplete City Hall. One year later, after this photograph was taken, Furness began the expansion that we know of uh, in, in later years, including the expanded train shed extra tracks, and, of course, the added office tower. This would be the first of many modifications to Philadelphia's passenger operations. Today, we know 30th Street Station and Suburban Station, um, all products of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and mainly a result of the Philadelphia Improvements Project between the 1920s and the 1930s, which is arguably one of the largest public-private partnerships in urban renewal. And the commuter districts in Rao's photographs were so fresh and new with immaculate gardens and ornate structures, survive in different ways today. Along the Paoli line, they still have the presence of the commuter, though the change in public interface and the lack of pride by uh, commuter rail operators sort of leaves the, the, the hand of maintaining the stations to the public. You know, towns get involved. Preserve stations like this in Wayne, whereas other ones reflect the change in demographics and the shift in the commuting population. And through yards and terminals, the costly and expensive operation of freight yards were a result of local need and system integration. The freight yards channeled individual cars into trains, assembled them, and moved them to their final destinations. This particular yard in West Philadelphia did not survive 120 years of change and consolidation and abandonment. Railroad yards survive today in different ways. Enola, the same yard that we discussed earlier, still functions to a limited degree but because the railroads now focus on moving 100 car trains of one commodity or containerized freight that can be taken from a train to a ship to a tractor trailer, these freight yards are really no longer needed in most places. And in Philadelphia, Soft Coal Hollow is an area in Greenwich Point in South Philadelphia that was designed to move coal from train to ship or barge. You can see this is a pretty primitive operation. Well, it was succeeded by piers 122 and 124 that were built by the railroad later on to, uh, to export coal, as many as 200 cars into a single ship or import iron ore to serve up to seven steel mills as far west as Ohio. The history of engineering ability on the Pennsylvania Railroad is unrivaled. Rouse images reveal the early capacity expansion projects and modernization of the right-of-way, but there was a lot that happened after Rouse's commission. New bridges were being constructed all over the system. Most that outlasted the Pennsylvania Railroad by a long shot. The first stone bridge that was built was was under endorsement by the Pittsburgh superintendent, Robert Pitcairn. The stone bridge in Johnstown was completed in 1887 as one of William H. Brown's first commissions, or first projects for the railroad. Finished in 1887, it survived two years later the flood of Johnstown that ravished the entire valley, a testament to its design. Today, it continues to serve Norfolk Southern, successor to the Pennsylvania Railroad. And though altered a little bit, it still sees up to 60 freight trains a day. And while the focus of expansion during Raoul's commissions was largely between Jersey City and Pittsburgh, some of Raoul's images predate this modernization. The Schuylkill Valley Valley Division, which was a, a, a line that went up to the anthracite coal regions, Um, was was one of those lines that sort of was left on the back burner because it was a secondary main line. And later it was replaced with a more substantial bridge in 1917 by Brown's successor, Alexander C. Shand. The railroad's junctions and switch stations were continually refined along the railroad. Early installations like Dillerville speak to an era of facilities that utilized lever and pulley systems to control switches and signals from a central building known as a switch tower or interlocking tower. You'll note the standard wood design in a lot of Rouse photographs where the railroad basically had a set of plans and they would just plug it into different locations. Some of these buildings would actually survive today. This is Alto Tower in Altoona, and it just closed last year. Um, Modified, but still surviving, The railroad um, maintained these structures even when they started to adapt new technology. And the new technology came as early as 1910, 20, and 30s, utilizing these interlocking machines that were electro-pneumatic in design and eliminated all the moving parts out in the field so the system wasn't subjected to the poor weather and freezing conditions. Congested areas like the Wyatt-New York Junction saw continual change to improve traffic flow, resulting in zoo interlocking. Zoo interlocking is still active today and is a great example of the various technological and system improvements throughout the 20s and 30s. And the signals on the outer reaches of these interlockings along the main line allowed the railroad to safely dispatch multiple trains throughout the system. This early example of a semaphore was seen as early as the 1840s, in use in, in, in the UK and Great Britain. This change in signal technology has been ongoing. The Pennsylvania Railroad designed a new system called position light signals to replace the semaphores, and now today those signals are being cut down and replaced for a new generation of model inst- modern installations, for better or for worse for some of us. While technology continued to change, some of the characteristics along the railroad remain similar. Rao was commissioned to illustrate the scenery and destinations of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Well, he had no shortage of this subject to explore. The railroad spans the scenic river valleys of the Susquehanna, Juniata, and Connemaw Rivers, revealing a pristine and wild space along the line. I found this really important to incorporate in the project, showing that isolated beauty and countryside that was still part of the passenger's experience. And while the opportunity allows a study in differences, the direct comparison of 120 years between Rao's photograph and my own reveals Jack Narrow, Jack's Narrows, a two-mile-long gorge along the Juniata River in Huntington County that little has changed. And Rao liked to include historical relics, reference to the changing landscape, continuing to offer this historical evolution um, the railroad corridor is still scattered with relics of both the canals, early alignments. Everywhere you go along the Pennsylvania Railroad, if you're paying attention, you can really see where the main line goes now and where the line used to go. Evidence of past operations like the Allegheny Portage Railroad and Rouse Photographs survive as scars today, um, while the main line corridor still homes with activity in the distance. And Rao understood the value of these relics, like the canal systems that illustrated a corridor intertwined with history. So the passenger that was coming to travel the Pennsylvania Railroad wasn't just getting to see the scenery, but they were getting a history lesson as well. Like Rao, I tried to include all these layers of history along the line, including the canal system where it allows. And by photographing the clues of older alignments, industries, mines, and other things... I continue to illustrate the evolving story of the landscapes associated with the Pennsylvania Railroad. The process of trying to tie together the past and present still inspires me to explore the former Pennsylvania Railroad and its environs. And while I was always envious of Rao's accommodations and his darkroom on the rails and private locomotive, I've actually found myself among the modern equivalent with the support from Amtrak, Conrail, Norfolk Southern, historical organizations, museums, and people alike that have made this project really what it is today. And though Rao's work was technically flawless, his, he had an aesthetic approach similar to mine. His was a commission. It was a job. He probably finished it. He probably cursed about the railroad. I do that too. Um, but when he was done, he moved on. For me, the project is a lifelong interest and a culmination to feed a deep-seated curiosity about our history of a growing nation and how the railroads played a part in it. Presenting these lectures, exhibitions, and texts is truly what moves the project forward while looking at the past through route to an era of American life that I unfortunately cannot recreate, but certainly can imagine thanks to his work. I'd like to thank you guys for your time tonight. It was a pleasure to be able to share this work with you.